Good, good evening, um, everyone. Um, this right here. My name is um, Olaf Kramer. I'm the director of a think tank called Policy Network and also a visiting fellow um, at the European Institute. And it's a great pleasure this evening to uh, introduce our main speaker, Professor Damon Chalmers. Um, I know that quite a few of you will have been participants of the uh, lecture series, which has been ongoing since uh, November uh, last year, and I think all of you would agree that we had a number of brilliant talks um, surrounding the Eurozone crisis, um, some focusing on the politics of it, others on the economics, um, others again focusing on questions of legal order or on democratic legitimacy. Um, the beauty of the EU is indeed that it's such a multidisciplinary area of studies, and uh, it brings together all these various dimensions. Now, conversely, of course, it's safe to argue that one needs to have a solid understanding of all these dimensions if one wants to make a compelling case for reform in the EU. Now, before the crisis, for me, one of the most fascinating debates was around the court rulings uh, of the European Court of Justice in relation to the posted worker directives, which had serious political, social, economic, democratic, and judicial ramifications, many of which I think have still not been thought through until today. Now, of course, now, you know, we have had a Eurozone crisis, things have moved on, and the picture has become even more complex. And I think it's for that reason that we need scholars like Damien uh, who provide such a comprehensive and interesting take on development inside the EU through a judicial prism, but always in mind uh, uh, what the economic, uh, social and political consequences are. So it's a really great pleasure to introduce Damon tonight. Um, as all of you, or many of you know, he's a professor of European Union law at the LSE. He's also a John Monet chair and editor of European Law and uh, uh, EU jurist. He's been a visiting professor at the College of Europe, uh, Instituto de Empresa and the National University of Singapore, and his most recent publication has been uh, European Law, Cases and Materials, published by Cambridge University Press in 2010. Um, Damien, it's, uh, it's a great pleasure to have you here, and we're looking greatly forward to what you have to say. Damien. Thank you very much, Olaf. Um, You'll have to bear with me for this lecture. It's one of these talks where I think I'm halfway through thinking my thoughts out on this, so it probably isn't as clear as it should be. Um, and I, it's a bit under false pretenses because it'll take me about five minutes to get to the crisis, so do bear with me. And the final thing I have to, and this is where I have to start with, is the first little bit, the first couple of minutes, aren't written. And I'll need your help for that. And I've really got a series of questions I want to ask you to help kick off this lecture. And I really just need you to raise your hands, yes or no, to these questions. And, and there are three. There are only three. And the first question is the following. How many of you would think we should allow women to be used as unpaid labour simply by virtue of their being sexually abused or unmarried mothers. Anyone here? I don't think it's very funny. Well, I <laughs> hope it's not funny. Um, any, anyone not think that? Everyone think that's unacceptable? I reckon, yes, most of you. 
Secondly, the second question I have is, do you think states should aim to give all their citizens medical treatment within a time limit that's medically justifiable? I.e., you give the treatment as soon as you possibly can according to the condition of the patient and the prognosis of the, uh, the illness. Who thinks states should aim for that? Okay, most of you again. And the third question is, if states could not be observed, could not be trusted to observe this limit, to ensure that their citizens received the treatment within these timetable, should we have a European right to medical care within a time limit so that people should be able to go abroad if, for that treatment if their states could not provide it within that time limit? Who thinks that should be... We would have to have European league tables. There might be issues of people having to uh, be told they'll need treatment abroad rather than at home. European standards for care providers, because clearly we can't send them abroad if we don't know what the quality of service is. And of course, it would all have to be possibly supervised by the Commission and the Court of Justice. Does that change people's minds? Who here, raise your hand if that changes anything. Right, my final question, there's a trick, there were four. Now I've asked those questions and you've seen the array of hands. Did anyone change their mind having seen the array of hands? No, good, you know your own minds on these questions. And this is really where the start of my talk begins. Now, the, the three examples I take, and the first one was a little bit of a caricature from the deplorable situation of the Magdalen laundries in Ireland. And the second came from a question that was asked in the European Institute by an independent journalist of uh, what have the Romans done for us sort of question, what have the Europeans done for us that you might think is valuable. And the example I gave is something that has now been set out in European law. It's in a 2011 directive, which will actually come into force in October this year. But I bet that all of you, your answers to these questions, which went, first of all, to what a state can ask of its citizens, what is acceptable. Secondly, what are the objectives we would like our states to realize? So decent medical care. And the third one is slightly different, which is what is the system of rule we would like our laws to set up? That they had relatively little to do, your, uh, your answers, with the question of process that went to establishing the rules. That your, rule, your ideas on whether you know, it's acceptable to behave in such an egregious way towards women, whether it's acceptable to, um, or it's desirable, I should say, to seek medical care for all our citizens within a reasonable time, we talk relatively little about whether it's Parliament, the European Parliament or the Commission that led to the laws. It was largely a question of legal authority. And this brings me in a sense, to my first point and where I want to start with this lecture. On the, the first point is that when one thinks about the authority of law and why we obey a law or laws and why we like or dislike laws, they are often quite independent from democratic. These, pri- these questions of the prices that laws can extract from us, what we're willing to obey, what we're not, their objectives, and the systems of power and rule that they set up. So on the one hand, is quite independent from the democratic process. And this is perhaps why issues about the democratic deficit 
in the EU have so little resonance, why arguments about which official sits in which chair seem perhaps not to grab European citizens the way those who engage in those debates would like. But if legal authority is sometimes seen as independent of democratic process, we know it's related. These questions about the price that we might want laws to to exact from us, what is the right price, what is desirable for laws to aim for, and what systems of rule should be set up, all these questions that go to legal authority are deeply contested. We'd all have different views about them, And for that reason, democratic process is sometimes seen as, or normally seen as valuable, because it gives us a sense of co-ownership about them and maybe a sense of assurance about what sort of laws will be adopted. But this question, this tortured relationship, this dilemma between legal authority on the one hand and democratic process on the other, in in a unitary state doesn't seem too big a problem. It comes down to what what should we do when democratic processes produce bad laws? That is the dilemma. Now, in a unitary state, most people would say, well, that's something we have to live with a bit. We can't find any other process that is better, that is a better substitute for the democratic process, rather than than to argue it should be more democratic. And similarly, when democratic processes do produce bad laws... Typically, the question is risen, well, should we obey those laws? People say it's a choice between law or no law. Even if we dislike a law, the choice is often anarchy. So within a unitary process, the issue doesn't seem too much of a problem. This relationship, this tortured relationship between legal authority and democratic process. Now, this changes a bit when you have a legally plural world. And what I mean by a legally plural world is when you have a choice between two laws. EU, for our purposes, EU law and national law. But even if you don't like the EU, which many people don't, it's a choice that confronts almost all states with the possible exception of Belarusia or North Korea. US often has to decide whether to apply foreign laws, either through comparison or international laws. And when you have two laws... The choice as to whether we sh- what we should do with bad laws that are democratically produced becomes much more difficult. First of all, if we have two, two laws, EU law and national law, there's an indication that we think each is democratically insufficient. The reason the EU was set up was largely because national law could not realise the things that states wanted for their citizens. One can argue the different accounts as to why this was the case, intergovernmental or some sort of transnational society, but it always comes back to that. The the fiction of the democratic process is broken a bit. Secondly, there's less good reason to obey the law. If I don't like EU law, no matter how democratically it was produced, I can say, well, it's not a choice between that and anarchy. I can just obey the national law. And so this is something quite nice about a two-level system, which economic federalists have pointed out. We now have, a, if you like, a something of a virtuous circle. If one democratic system produces a bad law, we could maybe choose the other law. And it no longer becomes, is the law so awful that we would rather have anarchy, but which is the better law? And the third thing that might require us to think anew about these issues is that when we have two laws, 
So once again, do we obey EU law or do we obey national law? It generates a scepticism about both. I think it's quite a good thing that people are sceptical about European law. It requires them to engage with it, challenge it, debate it in a way they might not otherwise. I can't think of any other system that would generate a huge debate about whether you should have LB or KG after a pound of, or half a kilogram of bananas. But, and this is the challenge, when you have a plural world, it can create lots of risks. The first is, and this is the Eurosceptic position, that you can have undemocratic laws coming in to replace democratic laws. This is what they would ask, argue the EU does. The second, and here I have some sympathy with UKIP, is you can have democratic atrophy. That what happens is everyone says, what matters is that the system works okay. We won't worry about democracy, but just ensuring the system works. Legal coordination, managerialism becomes what matters, and European democracy, natural de national democracy, local democracy, doesn't matter. Democracy gets downgraded as a value. And the third issue that sometimes happens is, even if you have to two democratic laws. With the best will in the world, they can create a mess. You can have problems of coherence and poor coordination. So yellow, one side wants yellow and the other wants blue. You don't necessarily get a beautiful green, but some mess in between the two. And these are the possibilities and risks of a world, of a democratic world where there's more than one law. And, I want, and what I want to suggest is that we need a new vocabulary for thinking about it. Okay? That it's no longer enough to think, well, we have legal authority on the one hand and democratic process on the other, because this challenges that. It gives you options and presents risks. You have to move to a new system of thinking about EU law, which brings the two tests, when a law should have authority over us and when it's democratically produced, into a single test, because there are two elements of this. And it's a very simple test. When should a law, I put EU law here, exercise democratic authority over us? It's as simple as that. And if you look at what's happening in the EU at the moment, that is the way the debate's going a little bit. For many, many years, the EU got very boring. It was endless discussions, constitutional debates, they were called, about moving around the institutional architecture. Who, who would take the decisions? If you look at what's happening now, that's become less, not completely irrelevant, but less central. That if you look at things like the review of competences that's happening in the UK, i.e. which areas of EU law should apply over us and which are national law, it has changed a bit. It's when should the EU exercise democratic authority over us? And that debate's not peculiar to the UK. It's peculiar to the UK that we have an administrative process, but you find courts across Europe engaging with this question. When should a law have democratic authority over us? And I'm going to suggest a very simple test, and then I'm going to say how it went. They got it wrong, and then I'm going to put forward how the crisis then brought a perfect storm, and I'm going to put forward, rather hubristically, my solution. And I'm going to say it doesn't matter too much whether you're in or outside the EU for the solution. <coughs> now, if the question is when a law should exercise democratic authority over us, I will suggest to you that there are two things it should do. First of all, it should improve our lives. There's no point in having a law if it doesn't do something good, if it doesn't augment the democratic quality of our lives. Um, and secondly, it shouldn't violate 
the democratic authority that other laws possess. And if you have a double system, each law should augment democratic authority, and there should be a principle of mutual respect. More than that, non-violation. And what I'm going to say is that these two things are non-fungible. They're not substitutable. And I'll give you one telling statistic, and it's in Greece. About currently, as I understand it, about 75% of Greeks think the euro is a good thing. This might seem a bit paradoxical, but they do. They see it as something that improves their collective quality of life. However, in the recent opinion polls that I've seen, at least, which were after that poll, most of the, well, the party that is highest in the polls is Syriza, the party that is opposing the bailout and the conditions of the Memorandum of Understanding. Now, the reason for that is that I can see where Greek citizens are coming from. They see, on the one hand, that the euro augments the democratic quality of their life, but they're concerned about the violations done to the democratic, uh, the Greek democracy, Greek laws being torn up, and this leads them to supporting Syriza under two. The two things strike me in most people's minds as a little bit different. Now, what I'm going to say alongside, alongside this is that because it's obviously arguable when something improves our lives or when it damages our democracy, you need institutional processes to manage the contestation for that. Okay? And that is, if you like, where I, I start and I take off where have we got to with the EU. Now, the EU's way of managing democratic authority initially was to ignore it. And they came up with quite a nice system that was actually put in place by the, by the national constitutional courts. And the initial system the EU had to set up was that it managed laws only in relatively discrete fields of activity. It said it did a lot of things, but in practice, the fields of activity it worked in, were very discreet. And it was told, irrespective of what it said, that was all it could do. And the first time it was told that in a really strong way was in Italy, by the Italian Constitutional Court in 1973. Frontini was an Italian tax case. EU law began to sort of, if you like, take bite for the first time from the 1970s onwards as the transposition period came over. And what the Italian court constitutional court said was that in principle anything that had a significant effect on civil, ethno-social or political relations was to be handled domestically. The EU had no democratic authority over these things. And it was very clear about this. And if you break this down in language that feels quite resonant 40 years later, it was saying the EU should not intervene in matters of political salience with a strong contestation on areas of traditional states monopoly of legitimate violence, policing, defence, criminal justice, shouldn't regard and intervene in social relations, so that's private law, anything that involves distribution of wealth like fiscal or social policy. And fi finally, and this is what the case was about, it shouldn't intervene on questions of what the Americans would call authoritative settlement, where the EU tries to set, off, set out law as some sort of official authoritative morality things like fundamental rights, family law, education law, religious law. These were set off by 
The Italian Constitutional Court, first of all, has off-limits for the EU. It had no democratic authority in this field. And, this, and the Italian Constitutional Court was followed by the German Constitutional Court, the French Conseil d'État, the UK House of Lords. The only countries that didn't really follow it were the Benelux states, which had in their constitutions no tradition of national sovereignty. They used other language. So a very strict division of a democratic authority was set up by the EU and by the constitutional courts in the 70s onwards. And this, the EU obeyed this really all the way to arguably the end of the 90s. If you look at what it actually did rather than what it claimed, so the areas which acted out its legal authority, they were quite interesting. There was dense activities, very dense activity, in low politically salient activity, external commercial policy, agriculture. Farmers got very upset about this, but a small proportion of the electorate. Similarly, in areas of high political salience, such as the single European market, and those of you who take my single market course will know this, the EU actually did a lot less than it said it was going to do, and it inter- intervened, at least initially, in a relatively peripheral way focusing just on transnational rules of exchange. It did not set up any governance arrangements of its own, no property rights. It was largely just regulating trade between member states, hands-off through things such as mutual recognition, and a relatively limited, at the beginning, legislative program, just under 300 laws, which might seem a lot to you, but was a lot less than was to come. Next, the EU actually created very little judicial activity. It's a myth, all those cases you all had to read in the courts. If you look at actually how much litigation the EU generated, it was very small. I did a study in 2000, and five out of over 40 fields of EU law accounted for most of its litigation. They are sex discrimination, VAT, free movement of goods, free movement of persons, that's EU citizens, and intellectual property. At that stage, that was trademarks law. And if you looked at most of the litigation... Only a quarter of it imposed obligations on private citizens. It didn't touch private activities in a direct way that significantly at that stage. Finally, where it imposed really significant burdens, which was areas like some areas of EU environmental law, it was just ignored by states or managed. Okay. So this was something where we could sort of talk about the EU in a way where arguments about its democratic procedures could be had quite separate from arguments about its democratic authority because it was actually relatively confined relative to what it does now. Now, I used 2000 as a cut-off date, I mean, just because it was nice. It's a catchy title. But from 2000 onwards, we knew to a new system of what I call generalised rule. What happens from the late 90s onwards? First of all, the single market gets carried away a little bit. There are currently, or October 2012, 1,420 directives on the single market, 1,769 regulations. That's over 3,000 laws. They cover governance arrangements. Almost every significant industrial sector has its own agency now. All aspects of intellectual property rights, once um, that, that on patents is agreed, And they have moved in significant ways on related public goods. So things like carbon dioxide strategy, so global warming, 
is significantly regulated for the EU's car automobiles policy. Healthcare is regulated through laws on tobacco advertising, nutrition and elements of food policy. And we have had things like stem cell research governed by EU intellectual property law. Secondly, the EU has moved into areas of what I call authoritative settlement, areas of high ethical political salience in a significant way with the area of freedom, security and justice. This covers citizenship, anti-discrimination law, immigration, asylum and increasingly large parts of family law. Things that dominate the courts and create very powerful iconography across all legal systems. Thirdly, the EU has become in many ways, even before the crisis, a big distributive player. And this occurred by virtue of the 2004-2007 enlargements. You now had states with very different incomes and very different production costs now part of the same economic territory. And this began to be felt in a significant way and you began to get distributive debates and electoral contestation in a way you hadn't had before. And finally, and this is the most significant aspect in some ways, EMU, what I call action planitis, amplified the effects of EU law. EU law in many cases will just require one law to implement it, but will affect a whole wide array of other laws beyond its formal jurisdiction. And the way this happens is through action plans. The EU works for a series of action plans which set up a program of action. And since 1981, they'll say, this is what we should have in this field, and this is the bit the EU will do, this is the bit international law will do, and this is the bit domestic law will do. So the EU, for example, has an action plan on family law, something you should have nothing to do with, really. And that action plan on family law, the EU figures on it because of the rights of migrants, both EU citizens and non-EU nationals, a bit on custody disputes across borders, and a bit on child rights. But of course, it then says we need an EU position on all aspects of family law to make sense of migrants' rights, for example, on same-sex marriages, childcare, etc. And it disrupts, in this way, many, many national laws. So we have a situation in the UK, and I'll start with the bottom statistic, the most reliable statistic, the House of Commons in 2007, said about 9% of all statutory instruments, if you want 9% of UK law, is EU-inspired. So there's one statutory instrument brought in to implement a directive. However, when they looked at how much UK law was affected by EU law, it was much, much higher. It was about 50% of business legislation. Now, if you look at what the EU does, that's it, it's about 10,000 laws plus 460 pages of treaty, 17,000 judgments, it's actually probably up near about 18,000 if you ignore the civil service tribunal. Every year the implementing acts of the commission is about between 1,500, 1,800. These also are legally binding and this doesn't include the number of international agreements it signs every year, which are also binding us, delegated, uh, delegated uh, legislative acts, or national judgments which amplify EU law. It's highly significant. And so the statement that was by, made by Marastrik in 2002, he actually repeated it foolishly in 2008, that the EU doesn't do much that's electorally popular or constitutionally significant is just not true. 
If you look at all the big debates in the US on race, education, healthcare provision, law and order, pensions less so, it's mainly through EMU, taxation, immigration asylum, other than for those who've got opt-outs, is largely done by the EU now. The only one that's not mediated in a significant way by the EU on that list is defence. It has moved to a generalised system. Now, this, this is where my lecture comes to the crisis, maybe a bit late, led to a perfect storm when you have the crisis because it breaks the traditional division of democratic authority, that the EU had been granted democratic, if you like, authority or legitimacy precisely on the back but on the basis it didn't extend or become a generalised system. And sure enough, at about the same period, you have EU law beginning to disintegrate. And this takes many forms. First of all, the EU realises that EU law doesn't work very well as a system of government. For all those who were worried about the Treaty of Lisbon and the European Parliament, it doesn't do much anymore. It got all these new powers, but it actually doesn't create any much legislation. Legislation is about 50% of what it was. Secondly, they're actually repealing and consolidating huge amounts of EU law because they recognise that it's, um, it's, 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 most of it is not working as well as it. And thirdly, they're finding new substitutes, particularly standardisation at the moment. Alongside this, they're having to invent other forms of legal instrument as alternatives to EU, EU law to secure EU objectives. The most famous example is probably the European Stability Mechanism, simply by virtue of the fact that they allow EU institutions full remit over this international agreement. So it's become substitutable with other legal orders. Now, that's what EU decision makers are deciding about EU law. But a bigger challenge for them is that national judges are not liking it, first of all. So we have explicit challenges to the EU in many member states, notably the Czech Constitutional Court and my colleague Sasha Garbage wrote a very nice piece about Dutch opposition. We also have constraints put across it, particularly by the German Constitutional Court, where its powers are particularly wide. It will have no authority unless uh, the law has been approved by the German Parliament. Oops. And then alongside this, and perhaps even more pervasive, we have implicit judicial subversion. Judges are pretending to obey EU law, but actually not obeying it in reality. This is happening across a large number of states. Uh, You can see the list up there. And it's not just judges. National administrations are doing what they can to minimise the compliance with EU law. We have a situation in the UK of copy-out. You just copy out the directive and paste it into EU legislation because the UK is worried about gold-plating. Other states, it has got to even more acute uh, position. You have the situation in Greece, where uh, Greece's transposition of EU asylum legislation was so poor that the EU had to admit there was a human rights catastrophe and that people couldn't be uh, sent, uh, asylum seekers couldn't be sent back to Greece because of the poor situation of fundamental rights there. And that leads on finally to popular resistance to EU law as manifested in all the demonstrations we've seen as a result of the crisis. So there has been, even prior to the crisis, 
a concern about the democratic authority of EU law and its legal authority that was manifesting itself. The crisis made it a perfect storm because it has been accompanied by a reduction of faith and trust in public institutions across the EU. And much of this lack of faith in EU law we shouldn't be too complacent about because EU law mingles with domestic law so it has also been accompanied by a lack of faith and a lack of authority in law more generally as a tool. Now, what can we do about this? This is where I start. I say we've now reached a problem where there's a real challenge to EU legal authority and legal authority within the EU. Maybe partly for exogenous reasons, but partly also endogenous to the way EU law has developed. And I want to come back to to rescuing it through democratic authority. And I'm going to suggest there's three ways of approaching it. You can run away from the EU. You can run away all the time. You can run away some of the time. Or you can try and engage democratically with the EU. Now, one way of running from this is to say, well, this is all so awful. There's not a a lot of love about EU law. Let's just leave the EU. This is a a way of regaining autonomy, regaining legal authority. The problem with that is it doesn't work. Let me choose a state, if I can find it, that is supposedly very independent from the EU, the United States, an article that some of you are aware of by Anna Bradford. She starts, few Americans are aware that EU regulations to take up the makeup they apply in the morning, EU cosmetic directive, the cereal they eat for breakfast, EU GM, genetic homogenifies, organisms directive, the software they use on their computer, EU antitrust laws, the privacy settings they set on Facebook, EU privacy directive, and that's just before 8.30 in the morning, somewhere in the middle of the United States. The EU also sets the rules governing their inter-office phone directory they use to call a co-worker, EU privacy law. So again, the air conditioners they have in their homes, electronic waste management and recycling rules, and why their children can no longer find toys at McDonald's, EU chemicals directive. All these laws are applied in the US. And Bradford set out to explain why. And our argument was, and there's one thing missing, the EU is one of the most protectively regulated markets in the world, and it's the largest market in the world. This led US exporters to both apply and lobby for EU laws to be applied in the US in three circumstances, Bradford noticed. First of all, where it was technically difficult to change the product, where you'd need a new production line. So two, levels, two types of cosmetic, one for the US market, one for the European. Secondly, where it was organisationally almost impossible. This is where they wanted to set up, a, for example, EU company law. They wanted a particular corporate structure across the world, and EU competition law was messing it up. Easiest just to go with EU competition law. And the third was just where it was technically difficult. So she gave the example of databases that had to comply with different data protection rules. And she pointed out this led to huge amounts of EU law being applied in the, in the US. But it got worse. Others then said, well, there are other reasons why EU law is applied in the US. First of all, those that don't like US central government will use EU law as an alternative model for things like environmental law or sex discrimination law. They'll just come along and say this should be applied in Montana or Maine or um, California. 
If you don't like George Bush, be a European. Of course, this led to a pushback in other states, but it led to an arbitrage using European law. And thirdly, in some circumstances, this kicked back the other way. U.S. administrators also liked using European law because it's easier to use than U.S. law if you wanted a transnational agreement on things like counterfeiting, terrorism, uh, a lot of data, particularly in the intellectual property field. So networks of civil servants created common rules in these fields that were in many cases inspired by EU law. And so even a state like the US applies a lot more EU law than it would like just by these dynamics. Now, even before we get to the fact we are small here in the UK and would not carry much weight in international negotiations, there is a further problem for us. And the problem is that there is a lot of EU law already in the UK and you can't get rid of it overnight. 10,000 EU laws. And you can't just get rid of these EU laws, partly because they protect public goods and there'd be a big vacuum, but also because most British laws have been interpreted in the light of them and they don't make sense, these British laws, if you got rid of the EU laws. They're indeterminate and incoherent. You have a legacy issue and this generates further pull towards the EU even if you left, which considerably reduces your autonomy. Even if you thought the EU was very, very evil, it's just evil in a much more pervasive way than you realised. Now, the the second alternative is to say, well, where these effects are less and where we like or dislike EU law most, we just leave those areas of EU law. This is the fresh start approach to EU law in the Conservative Party, selective withdrawal from certain competences. They call it repatriation, but it's selective withdrawal. However, that doesn't work very well either. Because, first of all, it's very difficult to protect the excluded field, as the UK found with the Working Time Directive. Often, because fields are interconnected, legal base is quite indeterminate, states can bring it in through another door, and there are often incentives to do so, particularly where it imposes regulatory costs. Sometimes the opposite can happen. You've excluded yourself from a competence, but you wish to participate in something else, and the state says, no, this falls within the excluded competence. This is what has happened to the UK in the field of visas and external frontiers. The UK, what's all the information and all these criminals that are meant to be supposedly coming into the UK, it can't get them, even though it thought it could, because it could opt into the area of freedom, security and justice, The other states have said, no, this is governed by Schengen. Go away. You can either join in fully or um, not join in at all, which is not what the UK wanted. And even if you can get around these legal controls, which are technically really difficult, you've got the problem that there will be political coalitions that will be formed in one competence that will be used in others. And this is the case of the European Banking Authority that we've witnessed recently that there are strong incentives for the euro area states to make their system of financial supervision work. Of course, the UK and the non-euro area states have got very worried about how they will then vote across the single market on financial services, particularly in the context of the European Banking Authority. But they are not the biggest problems. The biggest problems with this is that opt-outs are really difficult and timely to negotiate. You have to pay a price for them, and your preferences and the environment will change. 
what you might like today, you might not like tomorrow, and so on. They are too sticky, too fixed. And the other problem they have is that your likes and dislikes are likely to be more pervasive than simply being in a particular area. So take social policy. As I understand it, the Conservatives want to remain part of all the legislation on equal pay for work of equal value, all the anti-discrimination stuff. There's been no suggestion that that should be repatriation of that yet. But the reality is a lot of social policy, the stuff on flexible working, part-time, parental leave, is related to that original provision. And even in that field, they find things that are valuable, just as in other fields like the single market, they get troubled by some aspects of it. So, how do we go, given that running away from the problem isn't going to make things better? Well, there is a story that you have to obey EU law no matter what, and that's just tough. It's a story put by the Court of Justice so far, and it's just not true. If EU law is more sticky and more pervasive for non-EU states, it's also sticky in another sense, that it's less binding than most people realise. And this is what I'm going to suggest is a way of regaining democratic authority. And I'm now going to start with a bit, the technical bit, a bit of law. This is the identity provision in Article 4, Paragraph 2 of the Treaty of the European Union. And it says the Union shall respect national identities inherent in their fundamental structures, political and constitutional. Now, this provision had a successive provision, Article 6 in the uh, uh, Treaty of the European Union, which was non-justiciable. And until Lisbon came in, so it was initially something put in this Maastricht, but until Lisbon came in, this was not justiciable. And there's a number of things that have to be said about this. First of all, it uses the word respect. Now, my understanding of the word respect, and I've quoted the Harvard philosopher Stephen Darwell on this, is if you respect something, you can't tell it what it is. You can't subsume it by saying, you are what I say you are. The notion of respect suggests, and it's not just my view, by the way, this is the German constitutional court's view, a dual relationship, respecting an identity, respect an identity as something externally recognised, but as something valuable that the holder of that identity has, and it's valuable for its own sake. So it is something that must be respected and recognised, and EU law must give way to it, no matter what EU law says, because these things are seen as valuable in their own right. And this is recognised by German scholars, partially. So they say it must give give way to the German constitutional court, constitutional, sorry, the German constitution, and the rights in that. This is a fairly orthodox position in German law. Uh, The head of the Max Planck says that, as does the lawyer who represented the German government in the Lisbon Treaty case. However, it also says political structures, not just constitutional. And so what are these political structures that must be respected? And this is where I argue we have a way out of the crisis in European law. The first thing is that various states, and these states would all have to leave the EU, by the way, if uh, we believe it's truly in promise of EU law, say democracy is the superseding principle. That in principle, democracy takes precedence over European integration. And they're meeting a national view of democracy. Okay? And it's set out very strongly, Portuguese constitution, Estonia, 
in a modified way, the Czech Republic, and above all, in Germany. And then they have drawn implications from this in a number of states. Typically, they have gone back to the position in Frontini and said the, the democracy principle requires a space of democratic authority that EU law, in principle, can only touch lightly. The German uh, Constitutional Court did it most explicitly by re reserving a series of fields, tax, social policy, defence, criminal justice, policing, family law, education law, and saying EU law should not be intervening really in a significant way in these fields. But you find similar language in Italy, France, and the Czech Republic. Now what I want to say is that these states recognise that this idea of democratic identity takes precedence over the primacy of EU law. And to link this to the question of the democratic authority of EU law. What I don't like about them is this idea that democratic authority exists in some parts of our law and not in others. We either have a principle that applies across our law or we don't have it at all. So this is what I'm going to suggest we should have. It should be a democratic identity exception for EU law. And it goes back to the idea that EU law should not, and this is what my talk is about, should not violate democratic democratic authority. Sorry, let me start again. EU law should not violate domestic democratic authority, even if it provides some augmentation of democratic authority somewhere else. Okay? So why do I say EU law might violate the democratic authority of institutions and what do we need to do about it? And I'll try and do this very briefly. The first of all, we have to know what we're talking about when we mean democratic authority. And this is a rather hoary debate in EU law because the EU lawyers say we can't use a national model and the national lawyers say the EU model's out in outer space. But my understanding of, of all debates of democracy is they refer to three dimensions. There is a procedural dimension to democracy of engagement or representation, participation as free and equals. Elections, deliberative democracy, participatory democracy all have that processual element. However, none of us would say that voting to kill 49.9% of the population is democratic, even if a majority wanted that. There is a, a well-established debate that sees democracy as a political morality where citizens are a bearers of this entitlements to be equal and freely treated. So you respect, democracy is about respecting members of your society as free and equals. And finally, there's an epistemic element that it wouldn't be democratic to say particularly that the world is made of blue cheese. Democracy has been, there is a value of democracy, a concern to secure right answers. And democracy through the condescent problem has been concerned to show that it, rather than other models of decision-making, is better at getting right answers. Now, my view is that there is debate about the balance between these three, but anything to be called democratic must refer at some point to some element of all these three. If you don't have any regard to the procedures, you have a dictatorship. It might be an enlightened dictatorship, an expert dictatorship, a technocracy, but it'd be uh, fairly crude. If you don't have regard to any of the ethics of democracy, you have the worst forms of majoritarian abuse. You have the situation of that slaughter, slaughter of your own citizens is fine. 
And finally, the epistemic element is the argument that we shouldn't worry about coherence, the reality of the world, that democracy is little more than a thought experiment. It doesn't require us to engage with it, engage with the external environment. And so these three elements have to be present in any vision of democracy. However, the challenge is there's a tension between them, that one can outweigh the others. And states have various forms of managing these tensions. And I'm going to say the EU doesn't. And what we need is a and it cannot have. And we need a system for managing the tensions between these elements, which I will say suggest involves a citizen's initiative at a national level. And why cannot the EU do this? Let me forget that for the time being. First of all, most states have a system of democratic circuitry in place, a system of checks and balances, responsiveness, that if someone makes a bad decision or procedurally incorrect decision, someone else can come in and correct it. Now, the EU's democratic circuitry, so the Republican constitution, if you want, is incredibly poor. It's it's poor at a central level, and it's poor at a local level. First of all, at a central level, you have supermajorities. So if you have something requires passing by unanimity or qualified majority in the council, if they make a mistake, you've got to get unanimity or qualified majority in the council to rectify it, the decision trap. This makes it highly unresponsive. That should be limited judicial controls and legislation. The EU controls, uh, when the Court of Justice actually strikes down EU legislation, is almost never and certainly never for subsidiarity, and weak electoral responsiveness. No one gets punished at European Parliament elections for poor EU legislation. But even if you could change those for EU reform, you have a problem with the primacy of EU law. That in federal systems, there will be responsiveness by the local authorities, the states in the US. And you don't have this in EU law. There's a a straightforward duty to secure EU law. States and judiciaries can be fined, if they try and push back against bad EU laws. Judges who impose a dictum trying to minimise the cost of a bad EU law can can be side-flanked by another judge making a reference, and so on. And this compares very poorly with the United States. One finds in their federal system there are all kinds of pushback by the states to ensure that there's not federal abuse or federal error. So the first problem with EU law is it's very bad at being responsive to mistakes. And in ways that it's very difficult to resolve. Now the second problem is that the EU doesn't have a strong democratic vocabulary. It's all very well talking about fundamental rights and these things. But you have to have some idea of community to make them meaningful. And typically, and I don't want to spend too long on this, Most European states have replied on the interplay between two forms of democratic community. Community as co-presence and community around co-purpose. And one finds this in social and political theorists of both the left and the right. And how norms are interpreted relies on an interplay. The EU doesn't have that. All it's about is realising certain purposes. If there's a community, it's to realise the single market. I might say it's more than that, and this re- poses real problems. It poses problems about the incidence of norms. So if you look at freedom of expression in the EU, it's 
been invoked a lot, but it's largely been invoked in the context of intellectual property rights, which is not where most people would think it's, its heartland should be. But it also creates problems for its meaning. And I quote the Mesopotamian case. This was a case about political expression. TV broadcasters supportive of the PKK. Now, there's a well-known constitutional debate about political expression and the, the limits and, of hate speech. But that is not how the EU approached it. It approached it as a question of perfecting the broadcasting directive. So it gave an incredibly wide definition of when speech could be restricted, as it was all about creating a system that would work for a single market and broadcasting. And this, of course, can seem odd to people who are used to other ideas of freedom of expression. And the third thing is the EU is very poor. If you see democracy about a series of procedures to realise either democratic ideals or wishful outcomes, the EU does that very badly. There are no electoral manifestos in a significant way that are brought into being, but even more problematically, the EU does not bring its ideals well into being. And this is because the hierarchy of norms does not work as it should do. The treaty norms do not bind the legislature in a significant way. There's only been one case of the EU legislature, in a legislative case, in a directive, being found to have violated fundamental rights. Free movement and proportionality norms applied incredibly weakly. And this applies all the way down the chain. So what happens is that legislatures, delegated legislation, have huge margin for discretion as to how they operate. So they move quite quickly well away from their founding ideals. Now that might be fine, might be a sign of responsiveness, adaptability, but as they've moved away from their original ideals, it does beg the question whether they then should trump valued national ideals. So I say these are the three problems that the EU has as a democratic system when it becomes generalised. That it can't mediate these three challenges, the tensions which we want in any democracy, between the procedural, ethical and epistemic elements of a democracy, well, as it has poor circuitry, poor vocabulary, and a poor system of political economy, of bringing about collective actions. And that's partly because its central controls are weak, partly because the relationship between EU and national law is over-dogmatic. So what can you do about it? Well, this is my suggestion. This is how I would change the process. And then I'll say it doesn't matter even if you leave the EU too much. And I do apologise for going on, but I'll try and finish the next five minutes. I would say that anyone that didn't like an EU law should be able to launch a citizen's initiative. This would apply to any state, but I'd choose the UK. To a UK constitutional council. Uh, which would include the great and the good, but in a suitably plural way. It wouldn't be, just, it wouldn't be judges. And I said the fresh held at 100,000 votes, which is a rough proportion of the European Citizens' Initiative. And the, European, the Constitutional Council would take pleadings from other parties who might argue that uh, the EU law is okay, but it should be allowed to disapply EU law if the EU law breaches a UK law that's not a statutory instrument, and that UK law embodies valued and valuable British traditions, or English, Welsh if you prefer, Scottish, of individual autonomy, distributive justice, or retributive justice. And I'll explain why those in a minute. And along, having done that, however, there is a duty of good neighbourliness. 
as a duty to minimise its effects on non-EU citizens. If an EU law is disapplied, national parties should notify it to national parliaments, and this would apply in the same way as the protocol on subsidiarity, so each state has two votes for the two chambers. And the national parliaments, if they feel that this law has not been applied rightly, can refer it to the European Council, who can mediate the dispute if the dispute still exists. Alongside this, the disapplication should be notified to the Commission to consider whether to align EU law more generally. Now, why do I suggest this? Well, first of all, why the test? I choose these tests because there are certain democratic values. Although the EU does things, some things very well, it cannot supply. So if you value these things and you're a Democrat, then you just have to say you don't like the EU. First of all is freedom as autonomy. The only autonomy the EU gives is for transnational actors. I don't see anywhere, anywhere else in EU law. The tradition of freedom of autonomy does not exist in EU law. That is why I put it there. It is a good, can create other forms of freedom, freedom to do things together, but not freedom as autonomy in exclusively domestic situations. And this is why you have the debate about excessive regulation. Secondly, EU has this concept of justice, which is based on interdependence, and quite a, a developed one, if you look at consumer, environmental, labour law. But no such of justice that is either based out of kinship, shared traits, or whatever. The sort of justice that is historically generated, been behind the health service, uh, social assistance, forms of punishment, etc. And finally, it has no sense of cultural tradition. So these are goods which are valued in democracies, which the EU law cannot supply. And my argument, if it can't supply them and it violates them, then there should be the possibility, if you're a Democrat, for allowing that EU law not to apply in that state. Now, the state has to think whether that tra- those traditions are valuable or not. You know, are, they, are they really valued? And it has to minimise the effects on other EU citizens. But I think this generates a number of benefits. I think it gets around the problem of democratic responsiveness. You have a local system that counters the EU system that provides goods that cannot be provided by the EU. It also re-establishes democratic vocabulary in EU law. I'm happy to take more on this in questions. And for that reason, it seems to me a way of getting us out of the trap. But what happens if we said, well, that's still not good enough. Could we leave? Well, you've still got a problem. Because what would you do with all the existing EU law that applies? Okay? Now, your position if you leave the EU is that the EU law is clearly procedurally undemocratic. You think it's rubbish. But there might be EU laws that you like because they represent best practice or just you think they're ethically right, like non-discrimination for men and women. Your commitment to leave the EU doesn't mean a commitment to these things. So how would you recapture procedural democracy, on the one hand, which you say the EU doesn't have, but still get the ethical and epistemic authority of EU law that you'd want? And you come back to quite a similar, similar, similar thing. First of all, when you look at most EU law, you would find that... 
if we're looking at it as an ethical resource, what has happened with states is that increasingly democratic states have looked to other systems, such as human rights treaties, comparative law, not because they think they're good per se, but because they don't know what democracy means. They look to these other sources to amplify them. There's a very good study by Cole in 2012. And you still have the problem of majoritarian abuse. How do you deal with the problem of minorities? And in the UK, we've been a weak human rights culture. So whether we liked it or not, when we're looking, if we were out of the EU, almost certainly our courts would look at EU law as a point of comparative authority. Why should we give our women lower parental leave than the rest of Europe? And what would happen would be they would follow it unless they could provide reasons otherwise not to. Okay? So you would have a default position of following the ethics of EU law unless there were good reason. And if people don't believe me, this is a little bit of what has happened in the US with international treaties. Secondly, you've got the problem of epistemic authority. And the problem here is quite a simple one. The EU is a lot bigger and has a lot more resources than the UK. So it's a bigger testing ground for market regulation than the UK. It will have better expertise. So I would expect the EU to provide examples of best practice, sound science, whatever one wants to call it, which UK authorities would also be likely to follow whether or not they were in the EU. The only circumstances where that would not happen is where they think expertise does not give a proper account or they, pro- or they think the expertise is wrong. So what you would find would be, would be out, you would still follow a lot of EU law just because it has a certain authority of its own. But just because it has authority of its own doesn't mean we should follow it. That's not what democratic is. What would be the procedures for considering this authority? Okay? Now, there's three procedures. You could say, well, we could do it by Parliament. In every case, Parliament could look at EU law. But that's 10,000 laws they've got to go through to look at. And that is an awful lot of parliamentary time. I think they might have better things to do with the crisis than look at EU turkey tail legislation. So this isn't realistic. The second is, you could say, well, civil servants could do it. There could be an omnibus act. The civil service just gets rid of that stuff that they don't think is right for the UK. There's nothing democratic about that. And insofar as most EU law affects UK citizens in the first place, you would want UK citizens to have a say on what worked for them and what didn't. So you come back once again to some form of constitutional council, which would have to look at how to repeal or continue existing EU laws. You wouldn't have to go through the previous rigmarole of consulting the European Council or the national parliaments, but you would still need some system of appeal from it. Okay? It would have a slightly wider-ranging system of review. It just thinks the EU is undemocratic. Is there a better law? But that means you would need a better system of appeal. Okay? If, if it can review anything it likes, it would make more mistakes. So you'd have to go to Parliament. And this is the paradox. And this is where I finish. And I do apologise for going on a bit. But if we leave the EU, we will, need a situa- we will be in a situation where we will still continue to apply most EU law, but we will have a much more bureaucratic system for deciding which EU law we, we don't apply. 
My preference would be to suggest that we stay in the EU law, but we're much more intelligent, not just the UK, all states, about applying EU law. And we accept that EU law should not apply where it violates the democratic identity of a state. And I don't think that would be the end of the EU. You find there is a very fine federal tradition that allows this. I will stop there. Thank you so much, Damien. Um, thank you for this incredibly um, wide-ranging talk on, on, a, on a very complex issue. If, if you think uh, resolving the Eurozone crisis is difficult, then think of the crisis in EU law and things fall into perspective. Um, let's take questions uh, in groups of three or four um, to get a few rounds done before we close at 8 o'clock. Now, who would like to start? Uh, please introduce yourself very briefly. Um, I'll start with the gentleman here. Uh, Donald Davidson. Um, Conservatives talk about repatriation of powers. Um, I find this rather confusing because obviously with my limited knowledge of this area, um, I'm aware of the the, uh, because of the EU doctrine of acquis communautaire. The idea is that once EU crimes commons an area, it can no longer be taken away. So, I mean, I'm wondering, when Conservatives talk about this, are they being serious or or is it just gesture of politics? Because because given acquis communautaire, they know it's, it's not possible. Good. Hi, I'm uh, Jan Kumarek from European Institute and the Department of Law. I think it's the question which Damien would expect me to pose. And you started with questions, and I would have also questions which concern some scenarios. So suppose there is a country in the European Union where they had elections and they have constitutional majority, which is occupied by one party, and they decide to change the constitution and they decide that they don't like, let's say, Roma minorities. And in the way which is perfectly compliant with their domestic procedures, and they can even say, we don't like Roma because they have been here for too long, and it's part of our tradition that we just dislike them. My question is, within your framework, is there a place for the European Union to do anything, or would you say that it needs to be respected because it's part of their tradition it's a practice which was established by the constitutional majority. So the majority of the people in that state like that policy which is now being established. And I would want to hear, is the European Union here to do something about it? And uh, just because you know that I allude to the Hungarian example, obviously. Now, I would want you to distinguish two things. One is, well, obviously the EU perhaps doesn't do enough to address such situation. But... I think it's a separate question to answer, which is, should the European Union do anything? And that's the question I'm asking. So I don't want mm. you to say that, well, obviously the EU is not doing anything in Hungary, but rather, do you think, should the European Union do anything? Mm. Thank okay. you. There was one more question, I thought. Well, let's give time for people to think. There's one gentleman over there, and then we can make. Hi, my name is uh, Danny D. Um, in your last statement, you said um, we shouldn't comply with the EU law uh, if it violates the demor- democratic values. Um, most of these uh, state behaviors within the so-called democratic countries like the UK and the rest of European member countries, 
taking place within the arbitrariness, all the uh, discrimination, uh, equal pay, gender issues, religious issues, various things. Um, what do you mean by how can we measure that if it violates a democratic values? I just have a problem with this because they are so-called democratic, but still they're found to be violators of certain values that were, for example, the European Court of Human Rights upholds. UK is guilty of breaking this and that. So can you enlighten a little bit more? Thank you. Okay. Why don't you want to start? Okay. Th thank you very much for your questions. In relation to Mr. Davidson's question first, yes, I think they are serious. I mean, what happens when a state asks uh, for, I suppose, opt-outs or selective repatriation is, it, is that the acquis communautaire doesn't apply in that state anymore. So it's already happened once with the UK in relation to visa policy. We were actually signed up to that by Maast uh, Maastricht fully. And then we got a, a sort of an opt-out and then an opt-in um, at Amsterdam. So what would happen would be that or what the Conservatives or those that are arguing for this would like is that say on social policy that they would get an opt-out. The acquis communautaire, as they say, it would no longer apply as a matter of EU law. They would then have to decide law by law which of these laws they would like to keep as a matter of British law. And that would not be an easy process. That was the bit I said at the end. I mean, are you really going to say that British women should have less parental leave than the rest, uh, than all the women in the rest of the European Union, for example? Um, I think it would be a bit of a vote killer for the Tories if they put that as a, in the next manifesto but this is, these are the sort of choices they would have to be faced with now Jan's question which is slightly different from my talk but it's should states with egregious human rights uh, be regulated by the EU and there's a simple answer to this no they should be expelled and that's what the EU treaty says. Um, the EU treaty says that states that violate the Copenhagen criteria, and I'm not saying this is the case with Hungary, can obviously be forced to leave. Uh, I think that is fine, that when you join the EU, you sign up for a particular prospectus. If you don't like it or don't want to follow it, you don't have to be part of the EU. And other states can say that you follow it. Um, I don't think... It's not the current situation that the EU has the powers, that the EU should be getting into the situation of regulating and governing human rights. That once one starts along that power, it's a very, very... It leads to all kinds of interventions, a humanitarian intervention, which can have highly divisive and counterproductive effects. And the EU certainly doesn't have the resources to do that. Now, the question about democratic values, if I understood the gentleman rightly, your, your question was, well, might this be abused? Might you just get a majority that comes along, does something awful and calls it democratic and wants to disobey EU law, this constraint on democracy? And there is this argument at the moment that has been put by Chris Bickerton that the EU acts as this wonderful constraint on crude majoritarianism, so the example that Jan gave. I wasn't advocating that. If you look, I'll put this back up 
I, I say, I suggest disapplication of EU law in a very narrow set of circumstances. You can't disapply EU law just to discriminate to someone. You, you can disapply EU law when you argue that certain, can argue that certain democratic ideals that are valuable, and you have to sh- show that they're valuable, have been violated. So certain senses of autonomy, certain senses of justice, either distributive or retributive. So the examples that you gave, for example, discrimination, in my view at least, wouldn't fall within that. So hopefully it would not be abused. Thank you, Damien. Let's take a few more questions. Uh, I think there was... Yeah, over there, John, gentlemen. And, yeah, sorry. Well, why don't we start here, just to get closer to you. Thanks. Um, Jakob Bommel from the Law Department. Um, I want to ask, actually, about this uh, particular slide... One, one question would be, is it fair to say that this is bringing in juridification in an area where juridification is, is a problem, or is that not a fair reading of this initiative? And the other thing is, I, I'm constantly thinking about one provision that you might want to add here, and I know it wouldn't work, obviously, but the fact that it wouldn't work to me seems to be significant, and that provision would be something along the lines of when all of this goes through constitutional councils in other countries would get to submit proposals for one of their favorite laws that the UK would really like to be applied and they would then be able to suggest that that law will not be applied. And so it would be some kind of quid pro quo. That's just a, a stupid way of raising the question of you know, free riding, what do we owe each other, etc. that sort of thing. Good point. The gentleman in the back, please. Uh, Hello, Uh, Brian Mooney, University of Life. I would like to probe the answer you gave to Mr. Davidson's question about the Aki Communitaire. Uh, I noted the answer was that the UK signed up to visa policy, then got an opt-out at the Amsterdam Treaty. I would like to clarify if the opt-out was an opt-out only of future decisions or whether it actually disapplied existing law and decisions. Anyone further would like to ask a question from I just I thought I why the lady over there. Thank you. Sasha Galvin uh, from the Law Department. Um, I, was just, I, I very much like this, this proposal. Um, I'm just wondering if it would not make more sense to try and incorporate it um, in the phase before a certain EU law gets adopted so that you don't get into the problem of uh, the threat to the uniformity of EU law, etc., uh, of a challenge after the law has already come into force, whether it would not me- make more sense to try and somehow accommodate this procedure in the EU legislative process. Okay. Um, first question, juridification and free riding. I don't see this as a particularly juridified procedure and it wouldn't be a particularly legalistic one. That the, the, model, the model I would have in mind is uh, something, you know, the Conseil Constitutionnel, it wouldn't necessarily be lawyers, it would be a committee of, I suppose, various distinguished people, however one uh, places that. I mean, the reason I think one has to have certain constraints is in relation to the last question I asked last time, uh, I answered for the last session, to prevent, prevent abuse, unless it should be a reasoned process. But somewhere between, uh, the borders between law and politics, largely. Now, on tit for tat, I don't think this is about tit for tat or choosing something that is of value to us that would be 
It is about accepting that EU law is not an intergovernmental game, but has significant domestic distributive effects. The state is under under my proposal as under um, a duty to um, minimise the effects anyway. If this can't be resolved, um, it goes to the European Council and it suffers the political costs if it's behaving in a way that's seen as being a poor neighbour. I think the default position should be that in principle, if all fails, the national law stays. And the reason for that is a good democratic principle. That by and, law, by and large, that, as I understand it, the relations that most EU laws affect are in the first place domestic ones. If you look at EU law here in the UK, most of the p- relations that are affected by those laws exclude um, governing predominantly UK nationals. And it would be this, the converse for France would be France and so on. And therefore, as a matter of democracy, that position should follow logically through that, in my view, that if there's a disagreement, uh, the UK law should apply. Now, in relation to visas, my understanding of the current situation on EU visa law is the UK only the UK can opt into it. Because what happened at Amsterdam, which was clarified at Lisbon, was the UK, of course, got an opt-in to the freedom of security and justice. It participates in negotiations and has to make a decision whether it can opt-in to any legislation. I couldn't give you a position here, right here and now on which, which visa legislation the UK has opted into and which hasn't. From memory, and I may be wrong, from memory what happened to Amsterdam was at that stage there was just a proposal at the time that Amsterdam was adopted. And there was no significant legislation that the UK, UK had to pull out of. But I may be wrong. Mm. Very good. Is there any final question um, anyone would like to ask? Do, do you want to follow up? Oh, on, sorry. End the point. Oh, sorry, Sasha. Sorry, I do apologise. The point about pre-legislative. No. <laughs> i tell you why. One of the problems with the current situation is the intertemporal one that you have a system where EU law is not very responsive and it's difficult for it to change, and people's preferences change, firstly. Secondly, there's a historical legacy that national parliaments and those who are, what should we say, disadvantaged by not being able to engage in EU collective action have been historically excluded from EU law for most of its history. And so it should be right that if you're a national national parliament or you've been historically excluded from an EU law, you weren't really able meaningfully to participate in it, it was 30 years ago and it's been disadvantaging you, you should be able to challenge it, just as I think the system should be responsive. That doesn't mean you'll win, but that is, that is, that is what setting a symmetric system means. Okay, thank you so much. Is there any final question? I see one gentleman here and we start with the... Thank you very much, Damien. Uh, that was a very, very um, authoritative talk. Um, I find it interesting that your solution is um, effectively one which rests on national sovereignty, um, a kind of a return to that. And I wonder whether this means that um, 
you've given up all hope that the European Parliament can be reformed and made an effective institution. In other words, effectively your position seems to be that there is really no pan-European centralised solution to the current problem. David Antis from the LSE Law Department. Thank you very much for the presentation. I was thinking about um, the role of other member states in this mechanism. So what happens if uh, other member states disagree with another member state uh, disapplying certain uh, parts of uh, EU legislation? So I understand that, that could, the interests of other member states could be defended in the European Council. But what happens if an amicable settlement can't be reached? Then the mechanism doesn't really work. So can you please... <laughs> Say a little bit about that. The word democratic looms large on the screen, but uh, in this country in particular, um, we, we learn. Can you just that introduce yourself, please? Just. I'm sorry? Can you introduce yourself, please? Oh, sorry, my name is Francis Durham. Yes, uh, in this country, we learn that were there a referendum, a, a majority would probably vote to take us out of the European Union. Now, um, I would suggest that uh, a majority of people in this country have very little understanding of the basic institutions of the European Union, let alone the complexities of the, legal, uh, the European legal system. Um, so I would suggest it's, and, and the politicians just pander to this ignorance for their own benefit. I certainly think the Conservatives are very much doing that at the moment. So I would suggest it would be quite easy to find us coming out of the European Union with all the complexities where we to do that, you know. Isn't the real problem that, that there is very little education of uh, people in society about uh, Europe? And that's a real problem that needs to be addressed. Thank you. Last chance. Um, any final question? I think that's it. Okay. Um, I'll try and... If I'm, please remind me if I forget the question or it's been a long day uh, uh, and or I don't do it justice. So the, the first question from Luke about the European Parliament... Yes is the answer to your question. Um, I, I have given up. I don't, if I go through the three problems that I identify that it, about mediating between procedural, epistemic and ethical dimensions of democracy, I, I, my argument is that with the best will in the world, you sometimes get it wrong in a democracy and you don't get something that's sufficiently democratic. And you have these three checks. Now, I don't think an institution like the European Parliament can solve these checks. Of a, of a circuitry, proper vocabulary, and ensuring that the EU uh, meets, its, meets what it promised or meets its ideals. The second point by Davo. I actually think my proposal, uh, and this is of course very immodest, brings national parliaments into the thing. In fact, I, I, the, the talk, as you can see, was far too long and far too unclear, but brings national parliaments back into the process more so than anything. Because we have a system at the moment where there's sort of mini veto players in the protocol on subsidiarity. But here they would become potentially dominant reviewers of the value of EU legislation. Because 
If a state's constitutional council didn't like a particular EU law, it doesn't go first up to the European Council. It goes to the national parliaments, where there must be a debate within each of the parliamentary committees. They might take hearings, and they become actively involved in the review. Now, if the state still says no, it's going against most of the national parliaments of the other states and against whatever those heads of state say. There will be a political cost for that state. But I come back to my earlier argument, which no, 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 which I don't think was uh, very persuasive, which is the, abs- the default situation is what one's talking about in this case is a law that in the first place governs mostly that state's citizens. It affects them more than anyone else with most laws. And it seems to me in those circumstances that it's right when one's reached the end of the track that the national law rather than the EU law applies. Now, in relation to the referendum and the European education, so you asked me a difficult question because in a sense it's a much broader one than my talk, which is the prospect of uh, uh, what would happen with an in-out referendum and people's level of awareness and engagement with the EU. And of course, anything that can be done to increase that is very desirable. EU attempts to do that have been largely counterproductive, so some thought has to be given as to how that happens. Um, What I would say, and where I may, maybe I misinterpret your question, where I would uh, disagree slightly with you, maybe, maybe I'm reading too much into you, I think it's quite important in a democracy that people be bolshy. The EU is not not there to be liked. Um, uh, um, No government is. It's there to take unpopular decisions, and that is its value. We should be in a situation, and this is a separate question from coming out, we should be quite comfortable being quite angry about the EU in just the same way were angry about the Conservative Party or the Labour Party when it was sort of more... <laughs> maybe not quite the same way, but uh, in a parallel way. This is being shared by Policy Network, after all. Um, I still think that doesn't... I'm, I'm still comfortable with being British. And the, the fact we don't have that within the EU is partly from this issue that you raised, but I think it's partly from the EU's own failings that it hasn't made a classic distinction between, if you like, political system and government in the way that a state would. And that is a challenge for it. Mm, Wonderful. Thank you so much, Damon. I think you you gave us a great authoritative analysis of the problem, but also a very smart idea for us to reflect on, which is, I think, more than we could expect. And uh, please join me all in thanking Damon for this wonderful talk. Thank you all for coming. Thank you.